Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Hello, everyone. This is Dean Finale of Politics and Life Sciences Radio. Thank you for joining us at Politics and Life Science Radio. We talk about the life science industry and the politics driving the life science industry. We focus only on the facts here today. I'm very pleased to talk to Dr. Human Nurchasm. Uh, we've had Dr. Nurchasm on the show in the past, and he was such a great uh, guest that we wanted to bring him back. Uh, before we get to Dr. Nurchasm, let's recap what's going on in the life science industry, particularly what's going on with COVID vaccines and uh, particularly with J&J. Pfizer CEO came out and said uh, that there could be the need for a booster shot, a third shot uh, within 12 months of getting your second shot to kind of give you that necessary immunity. Uh, He's referring to the variants that are out there and, and the immune memory response. It looks like Uh, At the very least, uh, Pfizer came out and said that the immunity looks like it's about six months and counting. So it'll be interesting to see if this uh, actually is something where we have to get another shot. But uh, we're starting to hear a lot more of that type of chatter in the industry that these booster shots could become uh, a reality. So uh, certainly something we'll keep an eye on. uh, And, you know, that kind of when you hear the CEO of a of a company come out and say that you kind of wonder uh, is that a little self-serving so uh, it'll be interesting to see how the scientific community talks about that and how the actual data and science plays out uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine obviously that's the big news in uh, COVID and the vaccine world that vaccine is currently on pause uh, there have been instances of people uh, getting blood clots and You know, when you think about it in the context of uh, we've heard a lot about blood clots in Europe as it relates to uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. When we're talking about J&J, there have only been about seven or so cases out of almost seven million doses that have been administered. Uh, So it begs the question, was that the right move to sort of pause this now? Is this because uh, of what's the news out of out of Europe is this because, you know, if you recall back in October when the J&J trial was being done, they paused it for about a week or two weeks because of a similar instance. Uh, So a lot of issues going on there. So we'll talk to Dr. Nurchasm about that as well, get his input on that. And another interesting fact that has recently come out, uh, 
it's now showing about 6,000 people who were fully vaccinated have had what's called breakthrough uh, got contraction and gotten the virus even after they've been fully vaccinated. Uh, it's a small number of people, and it's not entirely unexpected. You know, when we hear these numbers, these efficacy numbers that came out of the trials, you know, they were about 95% for the mRNA vaccines, a little lower for the adenovirus vaccine. So not completely uh, unexpected, but it's interesting to now have some data to see what exactly uh, is the real world percentages and how effective in the real world uh, are the, these vaccines are. Uh, you know, when we think about the vaccines, it looks like almost or probably over 200 million vaccines have been administered uh, to Americans already. Uh, a large chunk of Americans have received two doses, so they're fully vaccinated from the mRNA vaccines that are authorized in the U.S., and about 250 million doses have been distributed. So the U.S. is in a very good position. It looks like not only are the vaccines being distributed very well, but now a lot of Americans are going to have a choice, you know, of which one, which location has Pfizer, which location has Moderna, which location has J&J to kind of pick which vaccine they want. So given the news out of J&J with its pause, uh, you know, will that deter people from getting the J&J vaccine? We know it's a lot easier to uh, distribute uh, because it doesn't require that cold chain storage. And it also, uh, it's a one-shot vaccine. So it's uh, a lot easier. You only have to get poked once. And about a month later, you have your uh, efficacy. So let's bring on Dr. Nuchasm onto Politics and Life Science Radio. Dr. Nuchasm is a uh, MD, PhD. He received his undergraduate uh, his Ph.D. in immunology and his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He specializes in cardiothoracic surgery and has taught and practiced medicine for nearly two decades in this area. Dr. Nurchasm, how are you today? Uh, good. Thank you very much, Dean, for having me. I appreciate your time. Well, it's great to have you. So, you know, a lot of the news, obviously, around J&J &J is these blood clots, these type of serious blood clots. Can you explain exactly what is cerebral venous sinus thrombosis sure yeah you know the, the cavernous uh, vein sinus is, is basically a um it, you know it's a, it's a venous space where you know it's a low pressure um blood transit system in the in the brain that sort of drains the brain and and basically uh, this area is what what is clotting, and it, you know the, the symptoms could be things like headaches. Now, I'm not a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, but basically the the complication is actually rare and unusual enough, uh, and it's occurred in the case of the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine, and also in the case of AstraZeneca, with enough frequency in younger people that it's gotten attention. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, it's basically um, a um, you know it's sort of an ominous sign, and I I suspect it's probably the tip of an uh, of a much larger iceberg in terms of um you know um blood clotting issues with these vaccines in general um as you know i've been warning um fda about that for some time now that's right and it seems like the other kind of x factor here is you know it's one thing to have these blood clots but it's also these individuals are also showing low platelet levels which my understanding is when you combine the two uh they, it makes it a little more difficult to treat and you don't treat it in the standard way. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there is a phenomenon of, uh, of 
which is which is basically some, a clinical entity we know of, where where the platelets are actually um, destroyed uh, in the process of also forming blood clots. And, you know, we see this a lot in cardiac surgery and in other surgical specialties, you know, uh, heparin sometimes actually induces this reaction. So what we're, what they're seeing in these, in these Johnson and Johnson complications is something similar to that, where, where there's almost like an autoimmune response against the platelets, which, which seems to be either hyperactivating them on the way to killing the platelets. So you have a situation where you have a lot of clots forming in people at the same time as, as the platelet counts start to precipitously drop. Uh, some of that is because the platelets are being consumed in making these, you know, large clots. Sometimes these clots are very, very large in these disease processes. And then, uh, but but some of it also is probably destruction of the platelets through an autoimmune process. So whatever the vaccine is is doing, I think in in the small minority of people where this is happening, uh, it seems like it's triggering that kind of a response where where you you get you know at the same time you get platelet consumption and destruction as as you're forming clots. So that, that's sort of what the clinical picture is. And I know you've been saying this for a while, but I just wanted to ask you again. So in your opinion, you know, having seen this uh, in Europe with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a, a similar type of vaccine, uh, now seeing it in J&J, you're confident that this is just not people that would have had blood clots anyway. These are likely, uh, there's a causal relationship between the vaccine and the blood clots. Well, clear, clearly, uh, there there is a causal relationship. I mean, you know, I think it's uh, you know it's, it's it's very clear. I mean, that's why the Johnson and Johnson folks have pulled the FDA folks have pulled this uh, um, off the market. I mean, clearly, there is some degree of causality. The question is going to be, and you know, we already know that COVID itself, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, actually does cause a lot of clotting problems. And so, and so, really, the the when when you look at the risk benefit analysis, I think in the risk benefit analysis, this is going to be a very rare complication from having these vaccines. The question is, how can how can you minimize that complication? And so, one of the questions that I've posed to the FDA is, is it possible where you know if you have an, a recently infected person or a person who's had an asymptomatic infection at the time of vaccination, is it possible that that you're compounding the risk for them in terms of in terms of blood clotting? That's not the, the first question. The second question is, if someone's naturally immune. Why don't we exclude those folks and, 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 you know, minimize the risk to zero for them? So, so in other words, I think these vaccines, we, we need to use these vaccines to protect the population that's non-immune. But right now, we probably have upwards of 30 percent of the population in the U.S. that's naturally immune. And so to expose those folks to that risk, no matter how small the risk is, I think is a mistake from an ethical perspective. Right. So, so I think we, we can actually rationally approach this uh, idea of getting to herd immunity and that these complications are actually significant. The other thing I would say, Dean, is that I think that the FDA and CDC are actually underestimating the rate of clots. Uh, caused by these vaccines. You know, th- our, our surveillance systems are pretty passive, right? The reason why these six complications have come to light is because they're very unusual and they're, and they're seen in younger people, right? Now, I, I would submit to you that we're seeing all kinds of clotting complications in older people in terms of heart attacks and strokes, and none of these are being classified by the surveillance system as vaccine-related, right? So I think we're missing a vast number of these these complications. And, and my hypothesis, if you will, is that, in fact, if, if a person has been recently or previously infected or concurrently infected at the time of vaccination, those people are the people at highest risk. And so until we actually can prove that and, and the FDA is willing to look at that, I think we, we may be doing something wrong here with the vaccine deployment and from a safety perspective. This is Dean Fennell, Politics and Life Science Radio. We're talking with Dr. Duchasm 
uh, cardiothoracic surgeon who practices medicine for nearly two decades now. He's also authored uh, over 60 articles uh, in peer-reviewed journals. So, Dr. Newton, do you think, A, do you think J&J, the pause will be lifted? And, and B, do you think it should be lifted? Because it sounds like, you know, if we're, if, if these are underestimated, you know, are we just trying to reach herd immunity, you know, to kind of for the optics of it to, you know, make people kind of get back to normal, so to speak. But we're, it sounds like we could be doing people a disservice by potentially even administering J&J. You, you know, Dean, if, if, the, if the complication is unique to the, um, to the Johnson & Johnson product, then I think because we have alternatives, the mRNA vaccines are the alternatives, yes, Johnson & Johnson should be pulled. Now, I'm not sure it's unique to Johnson & Johnson. I think, I think it's just uh, something that um, has been detected in Johnson & Johnson's case. In fact, you know, I just came across an article um, yesterday um, in Market Watch where a study by Oxford University found that the number of people who've received blood clots after getting vaccinated with the coronavirus vaccine is about the same for those who get the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca. Right. And, the, and Moderna. So the question really is, is this complication related to the vaccine brand? So in other words, is Johnson and Johnson's brand the one that's causing it? Or is it a general complication associated with the use of these vaccines, any of them really? And I suspect it's going to be the latter, meaning that these vaccines in general have a blood clotting characteristic in a minority subset of people. If that's the case, then what we need to do is we need to rationally deploy this with informed consent to patients. So patients know that there's a small possibility of this thing, right? And we shouldn't target any one of these vaccines preferentially. But if it actually is specific to Johnson & Johnson, then yes, Johnson & Johnson should be withdrawn because we have alternatives from Moderna and Pfizer that don't cause this complication. So that's really the question. Is this unique to Johnson & Johnson or is it um, a general characteristic of the vaccine? Yeah, it sounds like determining that would be uh, not a short process. I mean, what do you think, J and J, they'll they'll lift the pause while they're figuring this out, or do you think, uh, you know, maybe they'll just hold on to the pause at least as it relates to J and J? What are your thoughts, just in your opinion? You know, I, su I suspect that, you know, having, having been involved with FDA and CDC, I suspect that because the rate is low and the magnitude of the threat from the pandemic is so large, I think they're going to reinitiate the Johnson & Johnson. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's the right move, but I think they're, I, I, if, I, if I had to guess, Dean, I would say that they're, they're going to lift this, they're going to release the um, pause and proceed w with informed consent. Whether that informed consent does anything to protect the patients at risk, I don't think it will. Uh, but, but really, I think that there is some low-hanging fruit here, and that is that if we minimize the number of unnecessary vaccinations, we're going to protect more of the population, right? So even, even if the recently infected or currently infected people, naturally infected people, are not at risk for, of, of clotting, just excluding the, that population from the vaccination because they're already naturally immune, will protect a whole lot of people from any unnecessary harm. And I think that's actually a rational way to approach this. Unfortunately, you know, reason seems to be failing. We, do, we just want to vaccinate the living hell out of everybody, you know, even the people who are naturally infected, which I think is a very, very serious mistake. Right. So let's say, you know, talking about informed consent, you know, I agree. I get the, the vaccine. I then develop, you know, headaches, nausea, leg pain, the symptoms that may be indicative of blood clots go to my doctor, how difficult is it to treat this? Because I understand 
you know, this, these, this particular type of blood clots in combination with the low platelet levels that are seen in these individuals, you know, you don't treat it the same way. So is it the type of thing that, you know, if I were to go to the emergency room and say, Hey, I just got my vaccine. Now I'm showing symptoms of a, of a blood clot. They could treat this or is this such a condition that, well, you know, please go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you know, it, it, look, the, the, the patients, the patients who've had these serious complications have very bad problems, and and yeah, it, it's very difficult to treat. I mean, you can't treat it with heparin. You have to treat it with all kinds of special, um, you know, um, both invasive um, procedures to remove the clot as well as with special drugs to thin out the blood. So, you know, it's, it's complicated to treat these patients once they get into serious trouble. Whether or not you can treat them early, I, I'm not really sure that that's even feasible, you know, frankly. So, so I, you know, I think um, the informed consent part of it has to do with ethics. It really doesn't have to do with safety because, you know, informed consent doesn't really protect patients from harm, right? I mean, let's say, let's say, let's say someone informed you that you could get this and then, and then you say, okay, I, I agree to that and you get it. Right, that informed consent sheet basically just protected the manufacturer and the and the and the and the, the provider. That doesn't really do anything to protect the patient. So really, the question is, how do we protect patients? And the, and the answer is number one, we got to try to figure out who's at risk. Are people who are previously or recently infected at risk of forming blood clots? I think they will be. Now, I don't know if these particular individuals were previously infected, but I think what we need to look at is, number one, are people who, who were previously infected or recently infected at risk, at higher risk of developing complications following the vaccine? I think the answer to that question is going to be yes. And number two, do we need to actually vaccinate people who are already naturally immune? And I think the answer to that's going to be no. So, so we got to exclude those people from, the vac- from indiscriminate vaccination. And that way you actually minimize the risk of harm to the population as a whole, right? So yeah, informed consent is an ethical practice and we should do it. It's a legal and ethical practice, we should do it, right? But if you wanna keep patients safe, you should not do unnecessary procedures on them, right? And you should try, try to work very hard to figure out who's at risk. Does that make sense? It does, and you know, that begs the question, you know, if I'm going to get the vaccine and, you know, maybe I was one of those asymptomatic patients or individuals who had the virus but just never knew it, uh, should we have a situation, I mean, I'm recognizing diagnostics have not ever been where they need to be in this country. Is, is that, would you suggest that before people get the vaccine that we test people to see if they have antibodies or is it possible to test people on a wide scale? You, you know, Dean, that's, that's been my, the, the campaign and the initiative that I've tried to convince the FDA of is, is exactly that. It's called hashtag screen before vaccine. And the reason for it is twofold. Number one is that the, the people who've been previously infected may, science, from a scientific perspective, could be at a higher risk of harm from indiscriminate vaccination. So, yes, we should screen them out. And number two is we can actually get to, to herd immunity much quicker right? If we're not wasting the vaccine on people who are already naturally immune, right? So, so like, let's say 30% of the population is already immune and you're just popping these vaccines into them, right? That's 30% that, that, you know, those are shots that could be going into people who are not immune. Now, is it going to take some logistical planning? Yes, it will. But look, you know, we put a a rover on Mars for God's sake, right? I mean, you know, we, 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 you know, when, when we were running out of ventilators, we activated the defense production act to, to produce ventilators, you know, for everyone, right? This is not something that we can't do in this country. You know, that we have organizations and corporations like LabCorp and Quest who, 
you know, can very quickly scale up their screening capacity, you know? Um, and so, no, I don't think it's out of this world to screen people. Certainly you can give people the choice to do it. You can risk stratify it and you can say, okay, older people who are institutionalized or people who have cardiovascular disease, these are the people who we are going to screen all of them. And then if you're younger and low risk, we'll give you a chance to go get screened. It's your choice. You can go get screened or not before vaccination. But yeah, I mean, I think it's feasible to screen everyone before vaccination. This all makes great sense. Another question recently, and correct me if I'm wrong, but recently I think someone that received J&J was paralyzed. Did I read that correctly? Someone got the vaccine and then they, they became paralyzed. Did you, have you heard that story? You know, I haven't heard the story, but, but I did hear about a uh, 20-some-year-old kid today, someone on social media. I don't know how accurate it is, but um, uh, a young, young man who uh, received the J&J vaccine and, uh, about a day or two later um, ended up dying. Now, I don't know the details, but, you know, these are, these are events that have happened and have been reported in the VAERS system. Unfortunately, up until now, everyone's response is, well, this is, you know, these are unrelated to the vaccine, right? So it's very easy. Like, for example, you, you take someone like Marvin Hagler, right? He dies of a heart attack, right? Uh, or, or um, you know, um, Aaron, Hank Aaron, right? He dies of a stroke after the vaccine. It's very easy to say these are not related, right? But in truth, if you're looking for blood clotting problems, both of those are blood clotting problems. Then you have people like, you know, Jay Barton Williams, who's the orthopedic surgeon, 36 years old, down in Memphis, Tennessee, he gets the vaccine, and then three days later, he's in the ICU, and he burns up and dies from, from like a, you know, what they call a delayed COVID response. Meanwhile, he was vaccinated at the time of his, um, you know, at the time that he was infected. There was another 32-year-old teacher out in New Mexico, you know. He was vaccinated at the time he had an infection. He got very, very sick, ends up in the ICU, and then has a heart attack there and dies, you know, 32-year-old with a couple of kids, you know. So all these events are happening, and... I think our public health officials are, have a tendency to say these are true, true, and unrelated. So you, true, you got vaccinated. True, you end up having a bad complication and die, but they're unrelated to the vaccine. They're, these two are unrelated. So you can, we can do that if we want to, but in, in reality, there's actually a scientific explanation and a hypothesis that needs to be tested. If a person's infected, should they get vaccinated? I, I think the answer is going to be no. Dr. Nuchasm, thank you for everything you've been doing. Thanks for bringing attention to all these issues. These are all incredibly important issues. And most importantly, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Dean, thanks very much for having me again. My pleasure. We spoke today with Dr. Human Nuchasm. Dr. Nuchasm is a cardiothoracic surgeon. But most importantly, Dr. Nuchasm is a patient advocate. He continues to work as an advocate for patient safety and in 2015, he received the Health Policy Heroes Award from the National Center for Health Research. And I think we have to have voices like Dr. Nuchasm out there. And more importantly, we have to listen to Dr. Nuchasm and the valuable information he gives to us. Because, you know, as we march toward this herd immunity, you know, we're vaccinating tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. But Dr. Nuchasm raised a lot of really important issues that are probably getting lost in the noise of Let's get through this. Let's get rid of these masks. Let's get to herd immunity. Dr. Nuchasm, it was a pleasure having you today on Politics and Life Science Radio. This is Dean Finelli. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again. Thanks again, Dean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. 
For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 